The following program is for informational and educational purposes only. This program does not replace medical, mental health, or psychological diagnosis and treatment prescribed by your personal physician, psychologist, therapist, or other health care provider. Please consult your provider for diagnosis and care before beginning or changing any program or idea discussed. Welcome to Psych Up Live with your host, Dr. Suzanne Phillips. This is the show that brings you a psychological perspective on common and current life issues. Here is Dr. Suzanne Phillips. Hi, folks. Thanks for joining me again on Psych Up Live. We all experience shame, but none of us really wants to talk about it. It's said that shame derives its power from being unspeakable. Today, we're going to take some steps, and we're going to talk about shame. Our guest today is Dr. Joe Burgo, and he's going to offer an expanded view of shame, which actually serves us in positive ways. Dr. Burgo is a clinical psychologist, psychotherapist, and the author of the important new book, Shame, Free Yourself, Find Joy, and Build True Self-Esteem. Dr. Burgo's earlier books include, Why Do I Do That?, and The Narcissist You Know, which Dr. Burgo discussed as a former guest on Psych Up Live and which is available as a podcast. Dr. Burgo's essays have appeared in the New York Times, The Atlantic, and other major publications. He's a recognized expert on narcissism, and he's frequently quoted in USA Today, Glamour, The Huffington Post, and other major news outlets. He writes a blog on the topic we'll be discussing today on shame for Psychology Today and discusses personal development issues on his website after psychotherapy. Dr. Joe Burgo, it is my pleasure to welcome you back to Psych Up Live. It's nice to be back. Thank you for inviting me. Okay, let's start out. Joe, how would you define shame? I see shame as a whole family of, a, of feelings that have in common a painful awareness of self. So anytime you become self-conscious, you suddenly feel aware of yourself and it feels bad. That is a shame family emotion. Now that includes embarrassment, guilt, humiliation, self-consciousness, mortification, anything that makes you feel bad about yourself. So you distinguish this family from the kind of destructive shame we talk about in terms of the victim of child abuse, the victim of sexual violation or domestic violence. This is much more global. It, it is more global. I see the kind of shame you just described that's you know, usually associated with John Bradshaw. I see that as part of shame, but it, it's it's the more toxic kind. It's it's the it's the most destructive kind. There are other kinds of shame that actually have value that I talk about in the book. So I just see it as a whole spectrum of emotions. They can be they could be mild and fleeting at one you know, mild embarrassment, let's say, or they could be this kind of extreme kind toxic shame that you just mentioned. Okay. Now, one of the things that we were talking a bit before the show that really um, sets the mindset for thinking of shame more broadly is a questionnaire at the beginning of your book. And in it, you really touch upon, I think you 
call it four paradigms that we all actually experience a great deal of the time, but probably don't associate with shame. Maybe we can speak a little bit about those. You start out with feeling loved, feeling unloved, or feeling left out. Let's talk about those four paradigms. Sure. So the... This was my effort to come up with a tool that would help people understand the typical situations that we all encounter um, on a daily basis, really. We either en- encounter them or we anticipate them. So the first one you mentioned, unrequited love. I think everybody can relate to that. We've all had the experience of feeling um affection for someone, wanting to be involved with someone, wanting to date someone who... Um, doesn't reciprocate the feeling. Um, and people might not think about that as shame. I, I do think about it as, sh- as shame, kind of the most fundamental shame experience. It's when our love for another person is not returned. We feel that we've, we've fallen short somehow, that we're not good enough to be loved. Um, the next one um, is um, exclusion. You know, when whenever we feel left out of a group that we'd like to belong to, um, I think everybody can relate to that, too. Like, say somebody you want to be friends with or doesn't reciprocate your interest, doesn't return your emails or ghost you whenever you see on Facebook that a group of your friends have gotten together without you. You might not think about it as shame, but it it makes you feel bad about yourself in some way, as if you're, you're not good enough to belong. Mm-hmm. The third one, um, disappointed expectation. Well, that's whenever we, we fall short of our goals or expectations that we hold for ourselves. If you, if you fail on a test you thought you'd done well at, or you, uh, you, you apply for a job and you don't get it, um, there's nothing to be ashamed of, per se, um, but we do feel shame when we don't succeed at, at our goals, when we fall short of the expectations we hold for ourselves. And, and then the final one I think that most people will relate to as well is, is unwanted exposure. So say you, you mispronounce a word and someone corrects you or you spill your wine at the dinner table or you trip in public. I think that um, those are things that occur all the time. Um, Maybe not on a daily basis, but we certainly spend a lot of time trying to avoid feeling them, making sure that we don't feel Im- embarrassed or exposed in that way. So, so those are the four paradigms that I use to help readers enter into this new way of looking at shame. Now, one of the things you say early on is we're in a culture now that we're really, we're really not too happy about shame. We will talk about other people should be ashamed, but we shouldn't be ashamed. So how would I... Do, let's say I failed the test. It, it's likely that I'm going to say, you know what, he put on the test things he never said he was going to put on. Or I start seeing someone that I met online and I never hear from the person again. So I tell my friends, he's another catfish. He was another loser. How do you, you're suggesting that we could actually benefit, Joe, from these experiences. Tell us how we could do that. Well, well, let's let's use the example that you just mentioned, the, the test that you didn't do very well um, on. I, you know, I think we've all had that experience, and 
what we usually do is we make excuses for ourselves, like you suggested. You know, we'll we'll say, oh well, you know, that was an unfair test, or the teacher never liked me in the first place. But but sometimes there's a reason why we feel bad about not doing well on the test, and maybe we didn't study hard enough. Maybe we just weren't well prepared. If if we make excuses for ourselves, or if we blame somebody else. Then, then we missed the opportunity to, to learn something from the experience and use shame as an indicator. Shame telling us, well, maybe you need to study harder next time. Um, that, that's one of the big messages in the book is that shame, ta- shame is sometimes telling us um, that we, we need to do something different. We need to change our behavior. Another, another example that I certainly relate to is uh, what, if you, what if you go to a party and – Maybe you said something that in the, the in the morning when you're reviewing the party, you, <laughs> you you regret saying and you feel kind of humiliated. And, and well, maybe it's because you didn't need to have that that third glass of wine. Um, maybe you needed to just be a little more reserved, a little more careful. Um, there, there are all sorts of lessons that shame can teach us about ways we need to change our behavior. So the you know the real um, message is almost all of us do the automatic counter shame or excuse, but if I'm late to most of the meetings and I've told myself it's traffic, why do they call them? If I would dare to stop and think, is there a way for me to be on time? Then the shame could point me in the direction of a very positive change. I think so. Yes, I do. Um, it's hard. That, that means you have to bear feeling the shame, though. You know, shame's painful, and most of us don't want to feel pain. So we, we find ways to get rid of it as quickly as we can. I was thinking, when you think about the whole book, that one of the things that shame involves is disconnection. If I'm unloved, I'm unacceptable, I say the wrong thing at the party, and that it seems to me, correct me on this, a pathway that eases shame and may allow you to think more positively about the use of it is connection. So that when you call a friend who says, well, Sue, if you're drinking that much wine at the party, there's a good chance this is going to keep happening. That it's happened to me. That is sometimes connection, and, and I know you talked about pride movement, and I see groups work so well for trauma with this shame, that might be a bridge that might help a person move from the counter shame and the blame of the other to a real self-reflection. I, I think so, and um, I think that that idea of, of easing shame through connection is a big part of Brene Brown's message, um, you know, that I completely agree with is, you know, shame has a tendency, e- either it makes it us defensive or it makes us want to hide. And Brene Brown says, no, the, the solution really is to, to share your shame, to talk to somebody who you trust, a safe person about it. And that can, that can alleviate the, you know, the most destructive aspects of it and, and, and open the opportunity for growth, I think. Mm-hmm. Now, I just wanted to touch on this Google study that you did. Um, do I have this right? That when you did this study, most people didn't report feeling shame, Joe, but instead they reported other people should be ashamed? 
Well, I, I did a comparison. I, I searched two sets of terms. Like uh, the first set was I'm not ashamed or I, I don't feel shame. You know, ones that have to do with people either, you know, asserting a kind of pride, but also throwing off the yoke of shame. That was one set. And then the other ones were ought to be ashamed, should feel ashamed. And there were, I knew from experience that there were plenty of people who were throwing off the shackles of social kinds of shame, like that Brene Brown talks about or that um, Andrew Solomon talks about in his book, Far From the Tree. But what, what really surprised me was how many more results were returned for people saying that somebody else ought to be ashamed feel ashamed. You see it particularly in the p- political arena right now. We're always shaming mm-hmm. the other side, you know, and it's, mm-hmm. it's, not, it's not just one side, we're both doing it. So, I, I felt like we're kind of like in, a, in an anti-shame moment, like, like nobody personally wants to feel shame um, and we're going to resist it, but on the other hand, we think that there are other people, usually are our political enemies, who really ought to feel ashamed. Mm-hmm. It's true. And but one of the things you're implying is to move into the count of shame is to really miss a possible opportunity for, to expand something about yourself. It, it, on, on the personal level, absolutely. And on the social political level, um, if you shame somebody else for the opinion they hold, they don't want to talk to you. You're That's right. Not- that's not going to promote dialogue or reconciliation. It's just going to fuel this divisiveness. Absolutely. Now, the second section of the book is about masks of shame. And one of the first aspects of that section is you talk about patients who come to you and they are not aware that shame is sitting underneath their addiction or their promiscuity or their social anxiety. And I wonder if you could talk a little bit about how that happens. Um, well, I think in, in part it's, it's, it's a natural result of defending against the awareness of shame. I mean, shame is painful to feel, so we, you know, uh, we shunt it aside, we make it unconscious, we push it out of consciousness, like other defense mechanisms do. Um, I, th- I think that's part of how it happens. I think also that um, the, the kind of medicalization of mental health, the way we have... Um, we have disorders now that correspond to physical, physiological disorders so that people don't think so much about the meaning of, of their troubles. They think they've got an anxiety disorder or they think they've got an addiction. So we've gotten out of the habit of thinking about the meaning of, of psychological disorders and what the unconscious drivers of them might be. One of the interesting things, and, and, and those examples that you give are just very powerfully interesting and painful in a way to read, but I, I think they're really important. When you describe a young woman who is so uncomfortable with social connection, Joe, that she can barely look at you. This was on a video session, and I started to think, maybe the perfect session is a video session with this young woman and her cat. But it seems to me, I don't know that she would have ever gotten to an office. I started thinking technology has offered something here. 
I, I think so. And um, I, I have colleagues who work by Skype, and, and we talk about this, that we have a set of patients who probably never would have made it into a regular office, either because they, they live in countries where it's not available. I have a lot of international clients. Or, or because they, they, in their own community, they don't want to be seen going to a session or just because they're so debilitated by their, their, their disorder that they, they're shut-ins, like the first client mm. I, I describe in the middle. They can't get out. Um, I've had colleagues who have had very similar experiences with people who could not get out of the house to get to a session, but they could do it on Skype. Mm. Now, one of the things I felt you were doing in that section for our listeners to understand is there's those who have suffered so much shame from childhood on, Joe, that they've developed a way of trying to survive, which really isn't in and of itself problematic. But of course, these are lifelines. But promiscuity, addiction, uh, the woman who can't quite make eye-to-eye contact with you. So there's the group that is really suffering from shame with a capital A-S. S. And then there's the rest of us, because you go on to talk about how the rest of us use different types of techniques to mask shame on a day-to-day level. And that's, you know, the, the, the middle section of the book is divided up into three strategies for managing shame you know and the first one that we're talking about is avoiding shame just just try to avoid it well i describe extreme instances of that with my clients but then there's a there's another chapter that's called avoiding shame in everyday life that shows how we all do that all the time and it's normal there's nothing abnormal about wanting to avoid a shame situation. So some of the, the kind of examples that, um, that I give are, and, and they, they may seem odd to people to think about them as shame, but for instance, if you're invited to a party and you don't know anybody else who's going um, unless you're an extremely gregarious, outgoing person, that might be kind of uncomfortable. It might expose you to feelings of being left out, right? That that exclusion that we talked about earlier on. So you might decide, uh, I don't know that I'm I'm going to go to that party. That's one one possibility. Another thing is, you know, when when you go to a party, when you're thinking about going to a party, without even realizing it, you're going to think about how you're going to dress in relation to how other people are going to dress. So you don't want to go overdressed. You don't want to go underdressed because either one of those would make you feel exposed in an unwanted way. So you're going to figure out how to avoid that kind of exposure that would make you feel a a member of the shame family of emotions. That's totally normal and understandable. Why not? You know, why wouldn't Mm -hmm. you? I think what, what what you're doing, and we're going to have to take a break, is normalizing it in the sense that invites us to remember, even in terms of our evolutionary development, shame served a purpose. It served a purpose in terms of mores and a tribe's uh, customs. That is, you learned to do something different as a result of being disqualified or let out of the, the tribe. And in a way, you're saying, in a very healthy or appropriate way, we may use shame to discern where to go or what to wear. 
It's when it takes over and becomes excessive that it's problematic. Exactly. And it's the same with all psychological defenses, right? I mean, you said they're, they're lifelines. Originally, they're survival strategies, and that's the best the person could come up with, but then they become a problem in their own right, and that's the nature of entrenched defense mechanisms is they ultimately become problems in their own right. Okay. We're going to take a brief break. You've been listening to Psych Up Live, and today we're speaking about shame with Dr. Joseph Burgo, clinical psychologist, psychotherapist, and the author of the interesting new book, Shame, Free Yourself, Find Joy, and Build True Self-Esteem. Stay with us. Much more to come. Streaming live, the leader in Internet talk radio, voiceamerica.com. There are many people who claim to be dog experts, yet they don't really provide a connection between dog owners and their best friend. This is where the BS stops. Listen for Taming the Wild and Your Dog with expert author and nationally recognized dog trainer Brian Bailey. Each show has experts, professional trainers, and veterinarians to give you the right answers. Listen for the safety and well-being of your dog. Listen every Wednesday at 1 p.m. Eastern Time, 10 a.m. Pacific on the Voice America Variety Channel. Have you ever experienced the joy of living? Not just aspects of your life, but the true joy of life itself. Barry Shore has. You could call him an ambassador of joy. From a successful entrepreneur to becoming a quadriplegic due to a rare disease to his ongoing recovery through swimming and physical rehabilitation. Barry now presents his gifts to others as host of The Joy of Living. All you need to do is tune in. Listen live every Tuesday at 10 a.m. Pacific Time and 1 p.m. Eastern on the Voice America Variety Channel. Are you finding your frequency? It can be described as that space between failure and success. It's the future of digital media. It's finding your voice. It's engaging topics, content, and ideas. Jeff and Ryan discuss the digital media space and all of its aspects. It's about making the mistakes, taking the chances, summoning the intestinal fortitude to step out of your comfort zone, and discovering what you can accomplish when you decide to try, decide to learn, decide that you have something to say, and find your frequency. Live Fridays at 12 noon Pacific Time, 3 p.m. Eastern Time, on the Voice America Variety Channel. Think you've seen everything there is to see in online television? Let us surprise you. Visit voiceamerica.tv today for sports, health, business, and more on demand 24-7. You are listening to Psych Up Live. Join in our conversation today by calling Dr. Suzanne Phillips or her guest at 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. You may also send an email to radiohostphillips at gmail.com. Now, back to Psych Up Live. Hi, folks. Welcome back. We're here with Dr. Joe Virgo, and he's the author of the new book, Shame, Free Yourself, Find Joy, and Build True Self-Esteem. And we were talking about different things we do to avoid shame in everyday life. Joe, let's talk a little bit about denying and controlling shame in everyday life. Sure. Um, 
I think these are also very common ways of dealing with shame that most of us can recognize. The, the three that I talk about are, are really the kind of the narcissistic defenses against shame. They're, they're blame, contempt, and indignation. Um, I, talk about, I talked about those in my last book, The, the Narcissist You Know, and I also talk about them here in terms of you know, pathological kinds of narcissism. But I, I think that we rely on these strategies, most of us, on a regular basis to deal with shame. And uh, I'll give an example that I think most people will relate to. So, your, your significant other criticizes you for something or complains about you, something you did, get, gets angry. I think most of us, our initial reaction is to get defensive. I, I, almost maybe that's just like a universal. <laughs> um, it, unless it's someone who has, you know, really profound self-esteem issues and sort of takes blame for everything, most of us are going to say, no, that's just not true. You're, all, you're so critical. You're always criticizing me. You know, that's, that's a sure sign right. that you're defensive. You're always doing this. Or what about you? Why are you criticizing me for this when you do that? Um, and the tone of voice I'm trying to use is indicative of kind of indignation and even even contempt. Those are strategies we all rely on because it hurts, you know. We don't want to feel criticized. It's a blow to our self-esteem to find out that we, we did something that upset another person we care about or that made them angry or hurt their feelings. So, our typical reaction is to try and swat it away, you know, with blame, contempt, and indignation. Now, if we can cool down and think about it, we will often feel later on, oh, you know, I, I guess I overreacted there that, you know, I, I really did have something. Um, I really did do something that's, you know, worthy of criticism. And that might um, encourage us to apologize and say, look, I'm really sorry I got, I got, you know, upset at you for that. You're right. And I'll try and do better. Or, you know, I'll, I'll make sure that doesn't happen again. Some, something where you acknowledge responsibility for what you did. Again, like we've been talking about, that means you have to be able to bear that shame experience, the, the, the disappointed expectation. In this case, it's the disappointed expectation of your significant other. You have to be able to bear the pain of that long enough to think about it, figure out what you need to learn from that experience and how you can grow from it. Um, but I, I do think that initial stage is kind of normal. That defensive is kind of normal. It's just when it becomes permanent and entrenched, when you can never back down, when you can never be criticized, and you can never be wrong, well, then then maybe you should run for president of the United States. <laughs> well, yes, and let's, do, let's add two things to this. When the pushback involves name-calling, it actually becomes at times almost, I think, verbally violent. I think the name calling as a pushback to deal with our shame uh, is worth looking at if that is something that you do to defend yourself. And let's just underscore apology. I did a blog once on what an apology really means. And one thing that I think we all can fall into is I'm sorry I really was so critical, but Joe, when you, so as soon as you're going to yeah. add that rejoinder, we're not talking apology. 
Yeah, I always say that an authentic apology never contains the words but or if. <laughs> yes, right, right. Um, but actually, the power of an apology is really to be underscored because we're all human, because nobody's perfect. We all get into places as a way to, as you've been saying in the book, really deny our own shame. And to be able to take it back, it restores the connection that is the opposite of shame, which is the disconnection. Absolutely. Because the more you defend against the shame, the more disconnected you are. Now, you mentioned a term that, um, what did you mean by shame trading, Joe? Um, well, that's... that's um, what we're talking about in this response. So you criticize me for something um, and I say, I didn't do anything wrong. You ought to feel ashamed of such and such. And and I think that's that's, uh, Craig Malkin in his book, Rethinking Narcissism, talks about this as, as instances where shame is traded back and forth like a hot potato. Yes. Um, and it's a, very, it's a very destructive sign for the longevity of a marriage when that's in place. It doesn't bode well. Right, right. Neither does the uh, superiority or the contempt. Isn't, isn't that Gottman's study about just show me a film for seven minutes of a couple and the superiority and the contempt were two of the factors that made him wonder if this was gonna, marriage was going to last the single greatest predictor of failure in a marriage is what Gottman says is contempt. Yeah. And yeah. That superiority. Mm-hmm. It's lethal. Yes. Now, another whole segment of examples of how we control shame has to do with this self-mockery, self-hatred. Let's talk a little bit about that. This section I talk about as uh, strategies for controlling shame. So right. you were avoiding shame, denying shame, or controlling shame. And this, this was a big surprise to me uh, when, I, when I, I figured out with some of my clients that, that they're, they're extremely self-deprecating, even self-hating um, ways of treating themselves were, were really attempts to get control of shame so that that as bad as that feels, it's better than it happening when somebody else does it to you and you can't predict or control it. These to me are like the most difficult, um, the most uh, damaging strategies for coping with shame because they're, they, they really cripple people to an, a, you know, a, a terrible extreme. I mean, the, the client I talk about there in the chapter on self-hatred was so shut down and, and just so paralyzed by these attacks on himself but he he, what they did was they stopped him from ever making himself vulnerable ever exposing himself Mm -hmm. in any way so it was protective in a odd way when you think about it it protected him from that uncontrolled unexpected experience Um, but it it just the, the the consequences of that defensive strategy were were horrible, horrible. And this this guy was bullied, and I've I have found this to be true with pretty much everybody that I've known who was traumatized by bullying in yes. childhood. That they they have this sort of controlling of shame strategy, so that they don't ever want to be exposed in that way again. Mm. Now you give it's a little bit of a lighter example, an example of you using the I know it, I think it is, with your partner talking about 
the name of an actor? Oh yeah, the the I w- this surprised me is you know one of the ways in which we we try and um, control shame is by um, you know either disqualifying ourselves in advance. We say things like. This may be a stupid idea, but, right. yes. um, and that way I've already said it's stupid, so you you now cannot say it's stupid. Um, but I was, we were watching, we were watching a movie and my partner said, oh, who is that actor? And I, I thought it was, I can't remember which actor it was, but I thought I knew the name of the actor, but I wasn't sure. So instead of saying, I think it's Brad Pitt. Um, and then risking him saying, no, that's not right. It's actually Matthew McConaughey. I said, it's not Brad Pitt, which is, I couldn't <laughs> believe when I heard that come out of my mouth. I just, I was like, I just laughed at myself because I really, I, I love to know. I love to have right answers. That I, <laughs> yeah. That's been with me since I was a little kid. And I do not like to be exposed for having the wrong answer. So I just made sure that he could not do that to me by disqualifying my own answer in advance. People do that kind of thing all the time. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. They do. Yes. Um, one of the other things you do in your example, and it's a, it's really kind of a good one, is I think you use a call for connection is you realize that somehow you get a little too uh, feisty in an argument with a friend who you really like, and the friend's wife leaves, at which point you realize this is not good. Um, yeah. And I think it's the next day, you, you maybe share from there, you call someone. Yeah, and uh, the way that I realized that I had something to apologize for, that I had misbehaved in some way, is that I, I was going over and over it in my mind, justifying myself, you know, arguing with someone who wasn't there, kind of saying, I really, there's there's nothing wrong with that. I was just expressing my opinion. These sort of internal arguments, when you go over something that happened and you're constantly justifying yourself to somebody who's not actually there, it's almost always like a dead giveaway that you're <laughs> in the wrong. Um, right. So I've learned to recognize that in myself and say, you know, well, back up. And, you know, I did. I just called Laura and said, I'm sorry. I'm sorry I did that. You know, I just sometimes get carried away. And um, it's, it's surprisingly liberating, you know. Yes. The, the idea that you have to keep defending against your mistakes is it's so isolating. But once you can just sort of say, yeah, I, I made a mistake. I misbehaved. You know, then you get to be connected with people who almost always will just say, oh, God, don't worry about it. I know. But we'll forget about it. But that that's that's exactly what I think helps the rumination and the self-loathing, because without the call or the apology, you are stuck in that place. So I, I love it as an example of bridging with someone and an apology being really something that really expands your sense of self-esteem far more than ruminating about why you're right. Um, well, and it, it's it, that's that last point is really a, a, an important one because I. I really take pride in myself that I'm one of the few people I know who will actually fully apologize. Mm-hmm. There are people I know in my life who really owe me an apology, and I know I'm never going to get it. I'll, <laughs> I'll never get it. But that's, that's just the way it is. Yeah, there are those people. So let's talk a little bit, and this comes from the third part of the book, From Shame to Self-Esteem, about... You talk about shame defiance, Joe. 
as a way that mm, it's in a desperate attempt to deal with shame. It sometimes looks like resilience, but I don't know that it is. Well, it, 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 if it's an intermediary stage, like if it's a first step, I think it, it can be a positive thing. And, and I, I think you see constructive shame defiance in, in different kinds of pride movements. Mm-hmm. You know, people who have spent their life being shut down by shame because they, they diverged from some societal norm. And there's something healthy about saying, no, I'm not going to be shut down by this anymore. You know, I'm not going to feel ashamed of myself because I'm gay. You know, I think there's something really positive mm-hmm. about that. The, I guess where I, I depart from, from this way of thinking about pride is that I, I don't really think that uh, that is pride. I, I think that it's, it's shame defiance, which can be healthy. But I don't think there's anything to be proud of for being gay any, any more than there's a reason to feel proud of being straight. I think that, you know, you, you earn pride, you build self-esteem through living up to your expectations for yourself, for behaving as a, like a person you would respect, for achieving your goals, for working hard. I, I, one of the departures of this book is that I, I think that, that self-esteem has to be earned, um, that's not the way we've been thinking about it for a while now. You know, it, it was it was more um, a, an earlier way of thinking about it from the 80s. But with the self-esteem movement and all this emphasis on you know praising children and telling people they're great regardless of of what they've achieved, we've really we've moved away from that model. And I'm I'm trying to shift us back to this idea that. People build self-esteem by having expectations for themselves, by setting goals, by working towards them and achieving things that we feel pride in achievement. And it really goes much deeper in terms of building self-esteem and self-respect when we can share that joy with the other people who who matter the most to us. I think of self-esteem as something that it's a kind of an interpersonal experience. We, we do these we, we achieve these things, we live up to our expectations, but when, when we are valued by other peoples, when we belong to a community that respects us and values our achievements, then we feel even better about ourselves. Well, it fits into me when I compare it with um, Brene Brown's work is that so, and you're agreeing with some of this in your last chapter, and even earlier in that, to be able to embrace vulnerability and know that I'm going to get in the ring and give it my best is to give yourself, you know, the power, she says, to dare greatly, which is likely to build self-esteem. But you add an important piece. You're saying, in addition, and I think I agree, to have certain goals and you and to use, to dare to use strategies that may make you feel vulnerable or to be in places that may make you feel like, how am I on the stage? To work toward the achievement of those goals adds, really fuels the self-esteem. It it absolutely does. And, you know, I I totally agree with what Brene Brown says, especially um, on the role of courage, how important it is to be brave. Mm -hmm. Um, Because, you know, when you do try to achieve something, when you set a goal for yourself, you do inevitably run the risk that you will fail, right? Um, Which is why... Many people don't try. Uh, one of the 
clients I describe in the first section, the avoiding shame um, section, is he was so afraid of any kind of failure of being a falling short of feeling shame that he just never tried. He just he, he had no goals. He was apathetic. Um, he just kind of lived at home with his mother and played video games. Um, I, I think that it is important to have goals. To, uh, you know, and, and the, the, the research is so interesting on this. That was one of the... I'm, I'm going to ask you to just hold, hold that thought. We're going to take a brief break. I want to come right back to that research. You've been listening to Psych Up Live. We're lucky enough to be with Dr. Joseph Burgo. His new book, Shame, Free Yourself, Find Joy, and Build True Self-Esteem. We're coming right back with the research that Dr. Berger was talking about. Stay with us. The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com. Join Chris Epting every week for the moment. Chris talks to some of the most amazing people you'll ever meet, including authors, artists, and athletes. And that's just the A-list. These celebrities and public figures have interesting stories that all showcase the moments that their lives took a certain dramatic turn, changing them forever and shaping them to be the person that they were meant to be. Listen for The Moment with Chris Epting. Thursdays at 10 a.m. Pacific, 1 p.m. Eastern on the Voice America Variety Channel. Are you or someone you know interested in attending college? With both college tuition and college enrollment up 60% since 2002, there is a lot of competition, and careful planning needs to be a part of the process. Tune in to Getting In, a College Coach Conversation, hosted by Elizabeth Heaton and featuring a team of college coach experts. We'll bring you the tips, techniques, and know-how to navigate the road to college and do so the smart way. Listen live every Thursday at 4 p.m. Eastern Time, 1 p.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Want an insider's pass to everything that goes on in Hollywood? Join Summer Helene every week for Behind the Scenes. Summer Helene is known as the Duchess of Hollywood because she knows the insiders, legends, and celebs and brings the stories, the gossip, and the backstage scoop. It's the real Hollywood, though. So this program is for adults only. Behind the Scenes can be heard live every Friday at 4 p.m. Pacific Time and 7 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Become our friend on Facebook. Post your thoughts about our shows and network on our timeline. Visit Facebook.com forward slash Voice America. listening to Psych Up Live. Join in our conversation today by calling Dr. Suzanne Phillips or her guest at 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. You may also send an email to radiohostphillips at gmail.com. Now, back to Psych Up Live. Hi, welcome back, folks. We've been talking to Dr. Joe Burgo, and Joe, we were just speaking about the the role of achievement in enhancing self-esteem and how, of course, that dovetails with being able to feel some shame resilience, being able to have the courage to be vulnerable, 
as you say, you just sent off um, a proposal for a new book. You can't do that without the courage to feel <laughs> they may take it and they may not. Exactly. So that, so that now, was there something about the research you wanted to share with our listeners? There, there were two things that um, were really surprising and interesting to me. And we're talking about um, studies on um, infant and early childhood development. And one way in which babies are described is that they're, they're purposeful. From a very early age, they, they want to do things. They want to grab hold of something. They want to move towards something. They want to interact with you. They, want, they have all these things they want to do. And when they succeed at doing them, um, when they crawl, there's obvious signs of pleasure. There's some evidence of pleasure. Um, and now, it, you know, it's, it's too early to talk about self-esteem, but there's some, um, they call it competence pleasure. Mm-hmm. It's a, sort of a precursor. And, and then what happens is that babies, children, they, they want to share that achievement with their parents. They want their parents to notice it and celebrate it. And, you know, you know anybody like if you who've had kids, I remember my kids hitting milestones and, and just, we were, you know, overjoyed. Oh my God, did you see that? He crawled his first step. You know, it's like, it's a miracle. And I, I take that as this is my model of how you build self-esteem. You have something you want to do. You work really hard at it. You feel good when you achieve it. And then you share it with the people who matter most to you and they celebrate it. And that's Mm -hmm. how we grow to feel good about ourselves. Not simply by being told you're wonderful. Um, the other thing that the bigger surprise to me, and, and this is this got into a lot of you know, for me, kind of difficult neuroscience, is that mildly shaming experiences are crucial for social socialization in the second and third years of life. So parents tend to be kind of uniformly positive and praising in the first nine to eleven months of life, and then. As children start to be able to be able to move around, they have to start saying no, right? You can't do that, and and they also start issuing mild expressions of disapproval, like you know, don't interrupt. I'm talking to Tommy's mm-hmm. mommy right now, and these in 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 neuroscience, those are considered to be shaming experiences, and as long as they're not toxic, they're not overwhelming. They actually are helpful in developing certain parts of the prefrontal cortex that have to do with self-control. So shame is actually necessary for optimal development. Well, and they are, it sounds like the counterpart to optimal frustration, you know, there, where there is no pretty frustration, there, there's no growth. And it's pretty, it's a pretty good thing to say to a three-year-old, I don't know that we should put our shoes on the table when we're eating. I mean, and it is also the way it's conveyed, but for sure, to be able to know that you have tolerated the, you know, realistic, mild shaming experiences and frustrations is to build ego and to build self-esteem. And resilience. Yes. Um, it, it makes you feel confident that you will be able to, to manage the shame experiences that will inevitably come your way throughout life. Hmm. Now, as, as we're talking about shame... One of the things we mentioned um, is how often shame is associated with sexuality. 
for men and for, for women. And it's not often spoken about. It's like the next big secret um, that that isn't discussed. And you mentioned that's something you're actually working on now, Joe? Um, I am. And, you know, I think that women have been exposed to a lot of social shaming about their sexuality, slut shaming, you know, you're, you know, you're, you're not allowed to be an, an aggressive sexual person as a woman. Um, Brene Brown talks a lot about that. Um, I see men these days being um, shamed as, as well. Um, if, you, if you look at the Me Too movement, I think that's uh, evidence of a very positive social development in which we've used shame to expose predators you know, and, yes. and, and to say this kind of behavior is not accepted in our society and, and we're, going to, you know, we're going to exclude you um, from polite society. Now, I think there, there needs to be some way eventually to reintegrate people unless they're total monsters like Harvey Weinstein. Um, but I, I see a lot of, man, I call it man shaming going on right now in which men are being called out, shamed for certain traits that in their extreme forms really are bad news for society. We, 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 talk, mm-hmm. about it. we right. talk about it as toxic masculinity. That's, that's the term I'm sure everybody is familiar with by now. You know, like toxic forms of competition or abuses of power by position, by men in, you know, in positions of authority. Those, are, those should be shamed and those should be called out. Other things like, you know, interest, a strong interest in competitive sports, um, you know, a a tendency to be assertive in social situations that are kind of classically masculine traits. I I don't know. I feel like we've, as with most things, I just think the pendulum has gone a little bit too far. So I'm, I'm, my new book, if I find a publisher for it, um, is going to be about sort of non-toxic types of masculinity, kind of rooted in our evolutionary past and in endocrinology and our neuroscience. What are the ways in which we're wired to behave differently? What can we modify with social expectations? What is just going to be there no matter what we do? And how can we avoid shaming men for an innate nature that they may not be able to help? Well, I, I think... It's such an important topic, and even in terms of clinically, I have had men say to me, I, I'm, a, I'm so nervous, I don't know if I should, am I allowed to compliment anyone in the office? I'm a pretty gregarious person, but now, frightened that they would be shamed, they're really a little bit uncertain of how to be the good guy they were without being seen as the bad guy. Uh, that's that some of these predators have been so and and side by side with that is the question how do we help the young men we did a show on consent and everyone's a bit mystified um and young men don't quite know what to do there's always the predators in the fraternity house but the rest are really quite confused and worried about shaming the woman or shaming self joe so it's a really important topic I, I think so. It's a hard time. It's a hard time for everybody, for young people. Um, mm-hmm. It's just a hard time for men and women. My focus just right now is because where my interests are taking me is trying, trying, to, um, trying to alleviate some of that shame while 
you know, acknowledging that we need to be shaming these kinds of predators. Absolutely, absolutely. So let me ask you if we had an overall and very quick take-home message based on your book, Shame, what would that be, Joe? Don't be ashamed of feeling ashamed. Shame is a normal and everyday experience, and if you can bear it, sometimes it has a lesson to teach you. Terrific. Now, how will people find you, your blogs, your website, and your books? Well, all of the books are available in um, on Amazon. Um, some of them are available in bookstores. Um, you know, books books that are published and go out to Barnes and Noble and other venues. They have they tend to have a short shelf life because they got to make room for the next ones. The easiest place to find them is they're all on Amazon. Um, my personal website is afterpsychotherapy.com. That's a blog I've been writing for about six years. And then my blog on the topic of shame is just, it's at Psychology Today. If you search my name, Shame and Psychology Today, you'll find it. Okay. Um, Joe, I want to thank you for returning to Psych Up Live as an important guest for us. I want to thank you for addressing shame and offering ways that we can use shame as an opportunity for growth, pride, achievement, and self-esteem. Thanks again, Joe. Thanks for having me. Okay, I want to thank my listeners. Remember, you can hear this and any prior show as a podcast on my host site. By 6 p.m. tonight Eastern, this will be a podcast. On my host site, on my website, on the podcast app of your iPhones, on iTunes, Sketcha, Spotify, on the Voice America Psych Up Live podcast. Remember to drop me a comment or a question at radiohostphillips at gmail.com. Until next week, mostly take care, thanks, and be listening. Thank you for tuning in to Psych Up Live. Please join Dr. Suzanne Phillips for another edition of our programming next Thursday at 11 a.m. Pacific Time, 2 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Until then, be well and be listening.